to uh, to Brewer, and um, as we were singing, um, I've got the best job in the world. I really do. Um, you guys are such a big part of that. Um, and, and unlike what Brewer was sharing, uh, I would love to grab coffee, and I promise it will not always be that intense. I can't promise it won't be awkward, <laughs> because it probably will be at points. Um, but I would love to do that. Um, and I'm just thankful. So, uh, With that being said, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing this semester. Is we're doing a, a series called Storied, um, Finding Your Story and God's Story. And to do that, we're looking at what is the heart of the story of salvation in Scripture, which is uh, the Exodus story. And so what I want to do tonight is read um, about the Passover. And so if you brought a Bible, it's actually kind of a long passage. We're going to look at uh, Exodus chapter 12. And um, so you can either, if you have it on your phone or if you brought a Bible, there are actually pew Bibles um, in front of you. So Exodus 12, and I'm going to read from verse 1. It's kind of a long passage. I'm going to read from 1 to actually 32. So try not to fall asleep. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that in the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his, near, and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals and your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And in all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done in those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statue forever. Do you understand part of why the Lord is telling us to observe and remember is because we're so prone to forget. Like your problem and my problem tonight is we forget who we are. And we forget who God is, and we forget the gospel. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lambs. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. 
None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood and the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry. Can you imagine? This is like the first horror movie. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, forgive us for the ways, Lord, that we, um, that we often, if we're being honest, are bored by it. Forgive us for the ways that we often come to it and don't really try to understand it. Forgive us for the ways that we don't treat it like it's, um, like it's more precious than gold. Uh, forgive us for the ways that we don't treat it like it's sweeter than honey. Lord, I do pray that um, you, you've told us how can a person, how can a young man keep his way pure, and you've said um, to hide your word in our hearts. And Lord, how can we hide your word in our hearts if we don't understand it? Uh, how can we hide your word in our hearts if we, if we don't read it, if we don't listen to it? And Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word to, to, to teach us about yourself and to teach us about what you have done. Lord, I thank you that most of all tonight, it's not about how we feel. It's, what, it's about the facts of what you have done uh, for us and for our salvation. And Lord, I pray as we look at this passage tonight, you would open it up to our, to our eyes, to our ears, and to our hearts that we might know and love you more. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So basically what I want to do tonight is think about the Passover, because basically the provision of the Passover was about the guilt of Israel's sin. So what I want to do is think about, when we think about our stories in light of God's stories, I want you to think about uh, your story where guilt enters in. In other words, the things in your life that make you feel guilty. And I want to start with two stories. One is one that I recently read that takes place in Brooklyn, New York in 1973. And the second is actually from my own life that takes place in uh, Dirty Myrtle Beach and Spring Break in 2001. So first, here's a story that I read this past week uh, in, a, in the New York Times. And it's about, it's a crushingly sad story because basically here's how it goes. Is there's a four-year-old boy in his family. His name is Josh Meal. And on October 5th, 1973, he was in their house in, in Park Slope, Brooklyn. He was playing in the backyard, and the doorbell rang, and he ran from the backyard. He ran through the house, and if you've ever been to Brooklyn or New York, you know that they're, usually the doors are very gated. So he opens the door, and he sees through the, 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 you know, the wrought iron gate, he sees a, a neighbor, basically a friend, this 24-year-old guy named Basilia uh, Busa. And he was like one of a, a kind of a family friend, and he opens the door, and then the next thing he knows, he can't see anything. And his face is, begins to burn, 
And suddenly he can barely make out anything, and finally he can't see anything at all. And what had happened was this 24-year-old guy had opened the door, and when, when Josh Mule opened the door, four-year-old, he took sulfuric acid and threw it in his face. It was, the burns were so bad that Josh Mule lost his sight. The, the article was catching up with him. He's actually now a, a huge advocate. He lives in San Francisco. He's a huge advocate for the blind but the burns were so bad that not only did he lose his sight, but he had, to be, he had to be helicoptered to the nearest military base so they could work on the burns of his face. If you look and see a picture of him, his face is burned. And as I was reading that, I think, not only is it tragic, obviously you think about four years old, like, why? But put yourself in the guy who did it's shoes. What do you do with the guilt of that? Here's the second story. It's for my own life. It's not what I'm proud of. So it's uh, spring break, my junior year at Carolina, and my friends and I go down to Myrtle Beach, which is our first mistake. Um, <laughs> what is, seriously, what is good? Sorry if you're from there. Um, I love you, but it's not my favorite place to vacation. So we're there, and this one night where we drive to this apartment complex, and I think we're looking for a friend of a friend's party or something, and we drive up, and as soon as we drive up, we see something in front of us. It was a very strange sight. It was one of the apartments, and the door was just wide open. And we look inside, and here's a guy, and he, he's just he's laying on his, on his chair, and you can tell he's completely passed out, which is strange enough. But then we noticed that there was a wad of cash on the table. And so the four of us said, huh. Passed out guy, wad of cash, and so we stole it. 400 bucks, $100 a person. It's one, when I look back, you know, David in some of the Psalms says, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. That's one of them for me. Um, what do you do with your guilt? That's the question tonight. What do you do... Some of, you, some of you can relate to, you know, you probably can't relate to the first one in the sense of I hope you've never, you know, blinded someone. But you can relate to, you've hurt someone. Some of you have been bullies. Some of you have been bullied, but some of you have been the bully. Some of you have stolen. All of you have lied. All of you have thoughts that if we were to, if we were to like, display your thought life on the screen, like you would run for the back doors. Me too. You all have things, we all have things that, for which we feel guilty. And the question is, what do you do with your guilt? I want to do two things that I think Exodus 12 says to us. First, I want to talk a little bit about the problem of our guilt. And then secondly, I want to talk about, very shortly tonight, I want to talk about the provision of God's grace. That's what we're doing tonight as we think about the Passover in light of our own stories and the guilt, uh, what we do with our guilt. So first, think with me for a little bit about the problem of our guilt. Okay, The problem of our guilt. Here it is is that you and I are before God objectively guilty, and yet subjectively we don't feel the full weight of that guilt. Let me say it again. The problem of our guilt is that you and I are objectively guilty before God. We, have, we are guilty. And yet our problem is you and I often don't feel the weight subjectively. We don't feel the weight in our lives. We don't, we don't, we don't feel as guilty as we are. Okay, Work with me for a second. Here's, here's the thing you have to understand about this passage that's strange. Is what in the world is the Lord doing with the firstborn? If you, if you caught our passage, you see what the tenth plague is. We talked about it a little bit last time. But the tenth plague is the Lord literally saying, I am going to take the firstborn of all the houses of the people in Egypt, and of all, even of the animals, and I'm going to take the firstborn, and I'm, the angel of death is going to walk in your midst and going to kill it. 
Such to the point where you saw, like, this is literally like, it's funny because sometimes we look, we have these Christian movies. Like, the, the people who made Courageous would never make this movie. Like, this is a Quentin Tarantino movie. This is a movie that would, is shocking. And that when we read Exodus 12, it should shock us. This is worse than Django Unchained. This is blood everywhere. Literally, do you see what it said? That there was not a house in all of Egypt where there was not someone dead. The Lord took the firstborn of all the families of Egypt. Why? Because he's some bloodthirsty God? No. It goes back, if you were here when Trex preached, it goes back to this idea that what the firstborn represents. And you and I don't get this because we're Western and we're American and we're, we think incredibly individualistically, but you have to understand that in the ancient Near East, they understood that the firstborn, the firstborn child was the family. It represent, he represented the family through and through, which is why when God came to Abraham, you remember Abraham and Isaac, one of the weirder stories of the Bible? Why when God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, why didn't Abraham say no? What, 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 like, no, and the, the Bible is clear that child sacrifice is, is a bad idea, the Lord is against it. Why did Abraham, he didn't even, he didn't even you know, he just went with it. Why? Because he knew something. He knew something that we don't know. Which is that, here's the way that you have to understand. Part of why the firstborn belongs to the Lord, you have to understand this. Part of why the firstborn belongs to the Lord is that we all, our lives are all forfeit to God because of our guilt. We all owe God, we can't, we all owe God a debt we cannot pay. And so all of our lives are forfeit to Him. We all owe him a debt we can't pay. And so they understood there's a sense in which we owe the Lord. As the, as the firstborn is the representative of the whole family, we all owe him a debt we can't pay. We're all guilty before him. We're, our lives are all forfeit before him. Um, and this is why. So go back. Think about what sin does. Part of what sin does is when it happens, it creates a debt. So go back to the guy that I stole money from, that me and my friends stole money from. Say that I, I don't know his name, but say that I, you know, some, I talked to some friends and I found out who the guy was. I got his name and I got his number. I say I called him up and I drove down to Myrtle Beach and I went and said, hey, can we grab coffee? <laughs> it's, this will be intense. We're going to grab coffee together. And I just want to, I just want to apologize. I want to ask forgiveness. That would be like, a, like I need, in some ways that would be, I need to do that. I sinned against him. I need to go and apologize. But here's the thing. Someone's got to eat the $300. Either I'm going to pay the $300 or he's going to pay the $300. But the $300 was gone and someone's got to absorb the debt. Do you see that? Here's the way you have to understand sin. is that we've all stolen glory from God. You and I have all said, we've, enjoyed, we've said, I'm going to enjoy something more than you, therefore I'm stealing glory from him. Or, I'm going to enjoy something apart from you, and we're, we've stolen glory from him, and it creates a debt. And it creates a debt so big that you and I can't possibly pay it. Uh, there was a guy, this is one that, when it became kind of vivid to me, because here's, like, when, even as I say that, like, we don't feel the weight of it. So here's how a guy put it one time that has always stuck with me. So we were uh, in a Sunday school class back in Statesboro, Georgia, where we worked for five years. And here's how the guy said it. And it was kind of cheesy, but like it always stuck with me. So let's try it. So he said this. He said, okay, I've lived, he was 50 years old. He's like, I've lived 50 years of my life. 
let's just say that from one years old, I've sinned three times a day. Like that's a pretty modest, if we count the sin, we've sinned against the Lord in thought, word, and deed. I think we can all pretty safely say we, we sin at least three times a day, okay? So I've sinned against God three times a day, every day of my life. So that means in one year alone, I've sinned against him a thousand times, roughly. My, you know, my math majors, we could like do it, but it's like roughly a thousand-ish, okay? Was not a math major, did English, which is why I'm in ministry. So, um, so a thousand times a year, like at least times 50, 50,000 and just thinking about, it's way more than that. But how in the world am I going to repay that? How in the world am I, I, I like I can't. It's, it's impossible. But this is the second part you have, you have to get. Is that not only does none of us feel the guilt of what we've done. But it's interesting because when we look at this passage, you and I are different. We read it differently than they would have read it then. Because when you and I read this, we're actually more offended by what God does than by sin. We're actually more offended by the idea of God killing people than we are about any kind of thing that we are guilty of. Um, C.S. Lewis nails it. He's got a book. It's really a a book of essays called God in the Dock. And just listen to what he says. I think he nails this idea of how we see God and why we don't get grace because we don't get guilt. Here's what he says. He says, the greatest barrier I've met, and this is when he was doing his mere Christianity radio talks. Um, He said, the greatest greatest barrier I've met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably what the Greek word is, evangelium, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. But we have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. And listen to what he says. He says, the ancient man approached God. This is really important to get. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, for us, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. And God is in the dock. Or God's the defendant. He is quite, talking about us, he's quite a, we're quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war or poverty and disease, he is ready, we are ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is in the bench and God is in the dock. And Exodus 12 very clearly says no. That we are not the judge of God. That God himself is the judge of us. That, that we aren't the judge and God is the defendant where we say, who are you? Let's see if we like you or not. That's what we do, by the way. But scripture says this exact opposite of the way it is. That the Lord looks on us as the judge of all creation. The good judge, the right judge. And we are the defendant who are, and here's the thing, is we're guilty. Like we're like O.J. Simpson guilty. We're Jerry Sandusky guilty. But do you feel that? Is that how you see yourself? 
But here's the second thing. So first, the problem of our guilt. And here's the second, is the provision of God's grace. And here's the thing, you've heard me say it a thousand times. The gospel will never be sweet to you until your sin is bitter. I love, Martin Lloyd-Jones gives this illustration. He's one of my favorite preachers. But he says, imagine that I came to you and I said, hey, person, uh, I want you to know I took care of that bill. Your reaction to me is going to be totally dependent on which bill in your life I took care of. So if I was like, hey, I took care of that bill for you, but you don't have to pay it this month, don't worry about it. And you're like, what bill? And I was like, your Netflix bill. You'd be like, oh, Sammy, you are a nice guy. Thank you for that. But if I, if I, said, you said, if I said I took care of that bill and you, know, you were like, what bill? And I was like, your entire tuition and books for your whole college career. You would be, you would be like bowing down. Probably not. But, you know, you would, like, we would hug probably. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we wouldn't hug. Maybe we're not at that level. <laughs> You'd be thankful. And part of why, like, if you're here and the gospel is not very sweet to you, maybe the problem is, is that your guilt isn't very real to you. That if I were to ask you, what is, what, what is your sin? What are you guilty for? Your answer would be maybe too churchy. That's a lot of your problem. They're like, oh, I was homeschooled and then I grew up in the church. I don't really struggle. What can I pray for? You can pray for my grades. No. No, I will not pray for your grades. <laughs> no, we have way more pressing issue than your grades. If your grades are all you ask for in prayer time, you, you don't understand the gospel. Because you don't understand your sin. Because you've got things that are far more important going on in your heart. Maybe, you're, maybe, you're, maybe you can relate to Brew and you're pretty proud. And your friends hate you. They love you, but they hate you. <laughs> you know that. They love you and they hate you. They hate you and they love you. But you're always looking down on them. You're always finding ways you're better than them. I can remember, listen, my freshman year. This is off topic where we're going. Uh... My big thing, I've shared this before, my big thing was I thought I was a better Christian because when I became a Christian, I sold, this is so hard for me to say, I sold this incredible collection of 300 CDs, just like incredible CDs, secular, secular music, and I bought only Christian music. Yeah, let's just take a moment and weep. Please take a moment of silence and, oh, it was so terrible. And yet I was the guy who came, I can remember freshman year, and I would be like, what bands do you listen to? And they'd be like, you know, they name normal bands that like normal, that like normal people listen to. And I'd be like, oh, I only listen to Christian music. <laughs> like, oh, I would have hated to have me as a campus minister. Um, but here's the thing. Whether you're that person or whether you're the person, you've got a crazy story and you've got all kinds of stuff in your past. It doesn't matter. We need a lamb. We need a lamb. We need, we need judgment to fall not on us, to fall on someone else. And that's the provision of God's grace. So if guilt is this idea that we have this debt that we cannot possibly pay, grace is this idea that the, the Lord enters in and he pays the debt himself. That's what, this is very simple. This is what the Passover is, right? The Passover was this idea that when the Lord, when the lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put on the doors, when the angel of death walked through the, walked through the, the city... He passed over those houses. And here's what you've got to get. Judgment did not fall on the family in that house and the first one in the house. Why? Because judgment had fallen somewhere else. 
Judgment had fallen on someone else. And if you don't, and you understand that the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, Hebrews, Hebrews 4.10 tells us that it was never the lambs and the rams and the blood of the lambs and the rams that ever, that ever took away our sin. Because that blood pointed to something a lot greater. That blood pointed to Jesus. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus, you know the story, if you know the Gospels, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? The first time he lays eyes on Jesus, remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then there's Jesus. You remember the scene in the Gospel where Jesus is eating, he's eating the Passover with his friends, with the disciples. And if you look in all of the Gospels, here's what's so fascinating and so beautiful. When you look in all of the Gospels and they talk about that meal, guess what was at that meal? There was wine, and there was bread, but there was no lamb. Why? Because the lamb was sitting at the head of the table. The lamb was sitting with them. And when Jesus goes to the cross, what do you think is happening? It's the judgment of God for the guilt of our sin falling not on us, but falling on Jesus. Falling on the one who said, I will take... The guilt, I will take the guilt and bear it, and I will take the judgment and let it fall on me that you and I might be spared, that you and I might be forgiven. When I was, um, if I were to ever write an autobiography, it would be Sammy and parking tickets because like, this has been a theme in my life really embarrassingly, for an embarrassingly long time. I've always had a struggle with parking tickets. A lot of you can relate. Uh, when I was in college, it was super embarrassing. But you would have thought as I became an adult and like, got married, and had kids that that would have gone away, but no, indeed it did not. Um, so there's this one time though when I was still a campus minister at Georgia Southern, and um, they had given us these little parking passes where I could park anywhere I wanted to on campus. And what was embarrassing was that even though I had a campus spot and could park in this very reasonable place and just like walk, no, that wasn't good enough. So I would always try to, you know, that's so why I would get tickets. Is always try to, you know, I think I can like beat the system. This is so sad when I look at him. I'm 30 years old trying to still beat the system. Don't be me. Be like Jesus. He's so much better. So here I am. I've got, and so I go to get to renew my parking. Uh, I get all these parking tickets and I never pay them. I go to renew the next year. And, um, and I, I think something bad is coming, but I'm not exactly sure. So I go to the office and the lady says, and I'm kind of dreading it. And the lady says, um, you know, you've got about uh, $500 worth of parking tickets. And like, I'm... Because not only am I a grown man, but I'm supposed to be a like I'm a campus minister, right? Like I'm supposed to be like spreading the gospel on campus. And she's like, you, you know, you've got five hundred dollars in parking tickets, and I think, oh. And I'm thinking, how in the world? Like I can't go home and tell my wife, hey, where did the grocery money go this month? I paid some parking tickets. Um, <laughs> And then she says, but you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Here's your new pass. And like, I'm telling you, y'all, like I literally, like I was like crying and I wanted to like hug her across the counter. And that is the tiniest picture of grace. Because our debt to the Lord is so much bigger. And yet he says, you know what? I've taken care of it. I've taken care of all of it. Past, present, future. I've taken care of all of your sin. And the judgment that you deserve has fallen on me and on my son. 
So back to the question, what are you going to do with your guilt? Are you going to clean up your life? Become more religious? Go to church every Sunday? Start reading your Bible and then break down in like Genesis 30, you know, 18? Pray more? Go on a mission trip? Maybe go start volunteering at a homeless shelter? Good things, they can't touch your guilt. That's why when Jesus came, he said, one thing, it's one thing that we need. Repent and believe the gospel. Take your guilt to Jesus. And the promise of Jesus is he's taken your guilt and he has nothing but forgiveness and grace for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can say with the old hymnist, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. Lord, I pray for those of us who, who are, have a guilty conscience that you would let the sweetness of the gospel be like a balm to our soul tonight. And Lord, I pray for those of us who never even think about our sin that you would break through tonight in a way that shows us the horrors of who we are and what we've done, but the glory of your goodness and grace and the cross of Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.